Greetings, everyone, and welcome to On Track, our podcast series on trending legal and business issues. I'm Gil Porter, a partner at Hands and Boone and moderator of this podcast. And today we're going to return to a topic we've discussed a little bit before, the sanctions levied by the U.S., U.K., and other countries against Russian individuals and entities as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll approach the topic today through a different lens, the impact of sanctions on hedge funds and private equity funds, which often include Russian oligarchs and their affiliates and other sanctioned entities as investors. If an investor is on a sanctions list, how does that affect the fund's ability to secure financing, and particularly subscription credit facilities, which are widely used by private equity funds? We have two Haynes Boone guests today who recently authored a Law 360 article on today's topic. Houston partner Brent Schultz, who's negotiated and closed billions of dollars of complex debt financings in this space, and Dallas partner Robert Bruner, who regularly advises private equity and hedge funds in connection with the formation and operation of those funds. The podcast will be moderated, as always, by Nathan Koppel, the firm's Director of Media Relations. But before we get started, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. With that, let me pass to Nathan, and then I'll make a few remarks at the end. Nathan, it's all yours. Gil, many thanks. I want to start, Brent, with a term that came up in Gil's intro, subscription credit facilities. Can you please start by offering a primer on that type of financing? Sure. Subscription credit facilities are fund-level financing to a private equity fund. Um, They are usually, in almost all cases, revolving credit facilities that are secured by the right to call on the unfunded capital commitments of investors in these private equity funds. Um, This this type of of product is extremely popular with with private equity funds because it is usually allowed to, um, is usually used to bridge capital calls. So in other words, it's, it allows them to not have to call their capital from investors every time they have a working capital need or they need to fund an acquisition. And instead, they can just call capital from their investors on a regular basis. And this uh, has a lot of advantages in terms of easily being able to move on an acquisition instead of having to wait a number of days for an investor to fund a capital call and uh, in addition, uh, these facilities also have a letter of credit features in them that um, the, the funds wouldn't normally be able to use unless they had a credit facility in place. And you know, oftentimes, especially for infrastructure funds um, that use letters of credit for a lot of their, um, their projects or portfolio companies, this is an incredibly uh, beneficial feature. Yeah, thanks for that, Brent. And the topic again today is, so what happens if a sanctioned entity is an investor in a fund? And curious, what sort of due diligence is done to determine who are fund investors? Um, I guess at the outset of a a fund. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So whenever a subscription lender is starting to diligence a possible credit facility to a fund, 
um, they'll either interact directly or have their council more oftentimes interact with fund council to, um, to obtain all of the funds subscription documents. Now, these are documents that each one of the investors signs to subscribe for an interest in the fund, or in other words, to become an investor in the fund. Now, these uh, documents are, are usually rather long and have a number of, of important information pieces like the beneficial ownership of the investor, the exact legal name of the investor, kind of what, what country that the investor may reside in and, and those types of things. So typically the lenders will, will do a, a diligence review of those subscription documents to find out the exact legal name of the investor and at a minimum, they'll, they'll run those investors' names versus the OFAC sanctioned persons database and, and other sanctions databases, depending on the jurisdiction of the lenders. Um, you know, I think also the, the lenders will rely on to do their own KYC processes and expect that, you know, they know, know their investors well, um, in, in addition to just running the OFAC searches. Brent, one thing, in addition to the subscription documents, are the AML documents that investor provide, provides to the uh, fund manager, uh, are those typically provided to subscription lenders? It depends. I think you're probably referring to an AML letter. And sometimes we do get requests for an AML letter from the fund, just kind of detailing the internal processes. Um, some of that... Uh, just happens kind of outside of the scope of our legal representation and is more of a back office function by the lenders. But we definitely do see um, AML letters provided to the lenders from time to time, though it's not necessarily funneled through legal counsel. Yeah, I was, I was more getting to the like uh, copies of driver's licenses and um, in, uh, investor entity and trust of uh, organizational documents and, and more granular items on, on the investors um, on whether those are provided to the lenders as well or kept internally. Yeah, th those, those are definitely items we see requested. I think that each lender sort of has its own um, know your customer or KYC processes. Um, frankly though, with, with like driver's licenses and copies of passports and those types of things, they usually prefer to kind of just share it directly with the lender rather than go through um, legal counsel just for you know, obvious confidentiality reasons. And, and Robert, with all this information that's provided, it seems to me that it would be relatively straightforward to uh, to find out whether investors are on a sanctions list. Is it a straightforward process? Well, not, not so much as, as um, kind of what Brent was getting at. Um, essentially, most of the time, these investors are investing not just individually, um, but through trusts, other entities, um, third-party managed vehicles, and things like that, to where at first blush, like a trust or entity that's the technical investor might not themselves be on the sanctions list because the sanctions list might list the individual that's being sent that's subject to the sanctions or uh, their business that's subject to the sanctions 
but UK, EU, and and uh, US sanctions regimes all have um, what's often referred to as a 50% rule, where essentially, like, not only is the listed person subject to sanctions, but any other entity or trust where they are more than the 50% owner or controlling person also would be subject to those sanctions. So even running an OFAC check isn't always going to pop up every entity that's that's uh, should be subject to the sanctions regimes. So how do you get at those that those harder questions about beneficial ownership? And I mean, is it enough to can you just pose the question to investors of whether there's any connection to a sanctioned entity, or is that is that you need to do they need to do their own due diligence? So typically, in the subscription process, the um, fund manager receives uh, AML documents, AML and KYC documents from the underlying investors, which uh, Basically, if it's an entity or trust, it gets to the owners and controlling persons of the entity, um, formation documents, good standing, uh, control person, passports, and things like that to really drill down as to, to who the people are behind the trust or the entity. Um, but again, like that's very uh, personal, confidential information. So uh, it's sharing with lenders is often... Um, Either there's pushback on certain items, on sharing certain items, or they're shared um, directly through through kind of secure ways. So the lender doesn't have quite as much visibility. Um, of course, there's different structuring ways where uh, investors can structure things in a more opaque fashion and blind trust and things like that. But you don't you don't often see that. Um, what managers often rely on is is essentially not only their own checks um, and reviews, but also representations from the investors that they're not currently subject to sanctions and that if they ever became subject to sanctions, they'd have to notify the manager as soon as, as soon as that did happen of the update. And is that sort of diligence done, is, is it a one-shot deal or do you need to continue to do that over the, over the lifespan of an investment? So the require the legal requirements, of course, is if, if there's an investor that's become subject to sanctions, then you have to deal with it. Um, it's not just at, viewed at the time they came into the fund. Um, so you've got to you've got to be looking at it um, throughout the entire term of the vehicle. But oftentimes, uh, in practice, in practice, all of the legwork is done at the outset when the investor is, is going through the AML KYC process and the commitment is initially being accepted. And then from after that, on and after that, essentially the managers uh, kind of sit back and rely on the bring down representations that the investor made to update them if there's any changes. So the requirement is, is for the full life, but oftentimes most of the life work happens up front. Can you explain that a little more, the, the bring down representation? So it's essentially just saying that that uh, anytime that the information you've provided us at the outset of your investment becomes untrue or materially inaccurate, then you have to update us as, as soon as that happens. Um, also, often in the capital call notices, um, 
there will be a bring down of the subscription agreement representations, where in funding that capital call, the investor essentially certifies that their uh, subscription agreement and information representations uh, continue to be true through the date of that capital call. In in our fund managers making representations and warranties um, to creditors, you had mentioned that investors sometimes will have their own interactions or communications with lenders. Um, can you explain how, how that process works? So I think uh, under the credit agreement, uh, Brent can get more into this, but under the credit agreement, essentially the fund and the manager uh, make certain representations regarding the fund and its underlying investors, as well as providing all the, the documents regarding those investors and their subscriptions to the lender for their own diligence process. Um, and I'll leave it to Brent, but I, I believe that the investor, the lender essentially takes a similar process on diligencing the underlying fund investors as well as the, the uh, credit agreement representations there. Yeah, Rob, that, that's that's exactly right. I think the lenders do get all the subscription documents and do detailed review of, of kind of the investor bases and use that to form kind of the borrowing base, which is kind of the um, pool of unfunded commitments that um, the, the lenders are willing to advance against, uh, usually a certain advance rate against a subset of investors that they, they find credit worthy. So you know, to the extent that a fund uh, has an investor that's on a sanctions list, there are representations and warranties in the credit agreement that are brought down every time that the fund borrows. So essentially the um, ability of the fund to borrow will be turned off because they can't bring down or make a representation and warranty that there are no sanctioned investors in the fund. Um, that at a minimum kind of brings the fund and the lenders to the negotiating table to kind of discuss uh, what what further action should be done to address the situation of having a sanctioned investor. Um, you know, oftentimes the investor too will be removed from the borrowing base. So uh, each of these facilities has uh, a list of exclusions of events which are essentially things that happen to an investor where they go bankrupt or they have a major judgment against them or they don't fund a capital call that gives the right of the lenders to remove them from the borrowing base so they no longer have to count their uncalled capital as, as, um, as, as something that they would be required to advance against under the credit facility. Um, so, so I think those are kind of the most immediate steps. It's unlikely with the situations that we've seen in the market that a sanctioned investor would um, own more than 50% of one of our, our private equity funds or one of the vehicles that's part of the credit facility. But to the extent that that happened, there are covenants in the credit agreement that say no loan party can be controlled by a sanctioned person or is a sanctioned person, which they would be by definition if a sanctioned person owned or controlled them. So that would result in an immediate event of default under the credit facility and uh, the lenders would be in a position to exercise remedies against the fund. You know, they can't borrow anything else. And, um, you know, essentially the, the facility could terminate at the option of the lenders. 
and, and to make sure I understand Brent or, or, or Robert, either if you want to jump in on this as well, if, if a sanctioned investor is does not have a controlling interest in the vehicle that, say, has a 20% share, what repercussions would that have on, on, the, on the credit um, in, in that case? You said that person would be removed, but what would, what, what would the implications be? Sure. So, I'll, you know, I can take this from the credit facility side and Rob, maybe you can chime in on the fund side. But, you know, typically under most subscription credit facilities, that would shut down um, the ability of the fund to borrow because they couldn't represent to the lenders that there weren't any sanctioned investors in the fund. So essentially, that if the fund wanted to continue to borrow under the credit facility, they would have to go to the lender and request some sort of waiver or consent. And that would usually come with some additional conditions on and kind of diligence on what, what exactly this investor, who this investor is and what um, the fund is doing under the law to kind of uh, mitigate, mitigate that investor, which, you know, Rob can go into this a little more, but this usually means that, if the investor has, has funded some capital that all of their assets in the fund have to be segregated and put into a blocked account until they get a license from a sanctions authority to kind of, um, you know, terminate the interest and distribute those funds. Um, Rob, you know, feel free to chime in. Yeah, exactly. And there's, uh, there's a, there's a big problem, um, because you can't transact with the person, uh, anymore under, UK, EU, US sanctioned regimes, but even still under US regimes, not only do you not transact, but to, to force withdrawal and kick them out of the fund for participation reasons, you can't even do that um, where you need to go to the regulators uh, and get a, get a, a license to uh, even move forward with kicking them out. That's, that's the best course. And if there's ever a question, I mean, not to, not to be self-serving, but call call fund counsel um, because take the next steps moving forward. Um, not being able to transact with them and needing needing licenses to, uh, to even force withdraw them, um, you kind of need to to be careful as as to how you move forward. And, and Rob, how long would it take, or is there even a typical uh, length of time to get that sort of license? To withdraw um i mean it's it depends it's uh it's essentially how how fast the, the treasury department moves um but typically in the in the recent russian uh sanctions that have come out they, they move pretty quickly um so it's within weeks um, but it's definitely not an overnight thing yeah, and I would add to that too. If if you have to, depending on kind of the size of your credit facility and whether you have multiple lenders in it or just one, you know, to the extent that you need to go back to the lender group and get a consent, you know, that's that's probably something that's going to take some time, and and the banks are going to have to go through their credit committees and do other diligence on the situation. So, you know, it's a, um, a it's a it's a bad result for the fund if you know, they're, they're kind of shut down from their sources of lending because, you know, that the funds really do rely on these for working capital and to, 
uh, you know, fund acquisitions and many of the acquisitions are committed. So they need to make sure that they have the funding in place to, to be able to, to fund the acquisitions when it's required under the, the purchase and sale agreement. I mean, it seems to me that these sanctions really pose pretty significant challenges to funds. Is, is, is that fair? Well, the challenge, well, the challenges, if it happens are significant, um, I think the market has been lucky that, that, uh, the participation of, of investor types that have been subject to these sanctions have been, uh, somewhat limited. Uh, saw it a few in the Libyan, Libyan sanctions from years ago and, uh, as well as the recent ones with Russians, but it's uh, fortunately the, the market participation from those uh, Russian oligarchs was much more limited than what people would expect. Yeah. Well, uh, one final question, I guess, Rob, Brent, anything else you'd, you'd want to mention about, about the topic? I think the biggest thing from my end is that uh, everybody's practice has been to do all the digging up front and and not uh, and just kind of sit back and rely on the representation to bring downs going forward. Um, so definitely to, to keep an eye out because if something came up, um, especially given the that most all these funds are using credit facilities now and the the potential loss of that of that borrowing um, line uh, and have really bad impacts on the fund management and also with the sanctions regimes uh, not allowing transacting with with any sanctions per sanctioned persons um, mm-hmm. just something to keep keep their eye on as, as they move forward um, and can kind of consider periodic updates but but you say you say rob most fund managers already are, are have quite a bit of practice with these sanctions regimes and it sounds like best practices have been in place for, for quite a while now. Um, yes, but again, like the, they're, they're pretty few and far between as to when they come up to where, uh, sanctions persons are investors in the private equity funds and we run into these issues. Um, so to the extent they, they come up more and more, uh, the, the potential pitfalls are, pretty draconian so Mm -hmm. uh, definitely something to keep in mind and and be abreast of so that you don't you don't uh uh real forget to think about it as as, uh the treasury department comes out with new new sanctions brent anything to add on your end yeah i would just sort of um echo a lot of what rob said and just this is an evolving area of, I think subscription facilities and and people are the market is trying to work through this and I think the default kind of approach has been to just rely on kind of the already robust sanctions provisions in the credit facilities but we have seen sponsors try to negotiate um, negotiate kind of compromise situations where you know they can still have, you know, a small sanctioned investor. And as long as they're doing everything that's required under the law to mitigate that investor, they can, they can still have access to their credit facility, at least in some capacity. So um, it'll be interesting to see how uh, these 
how this continues to evolve um, going forward. Well, well, thank you very much. And with that, Gil, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brent, Rob, and of course, Nathan, uh, for this discussion. And as always, thank you to our listeners for joining us. If you'd like to dig deeper into this topic, I encourage you to read Brent and Rob's Law360 article on this topic, which they co-authored with our partner, Todd Cubbage, and it's available at HanesBoone.com, along with a large number of other articles on sanctions and other trending issues. For those of you who've not dealt with sanctions, I would note that while while there's been a commentary made about how reasonably receptive Treasury has been with these sanctions. That's not always the case, and it's not always depending on the answer. It's not your normal bureaucratic function where you can expect an answer. So the best uh, advice is tread carefully. We have some great topics coming up on this podcast going forward, including uh, one on seismic growth and recent challenges relating to blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. So please keep listening and continue to follow our articles, webinars, and podcasts at our website, hanesboon.com. Until then, be well and stay safe.